For the last several weeks, we have looked in the Gospel of John and considered the I am sayings of Jesus. We have considered him as the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd. And this morning from John 11, we're going to see where Jesus says to Mary, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Every person in the room and every person you will ever meet has some belief concerning life after death. Every godless and false religion has a teaching concerning it. And outside of Christianity, there are two main teachings. Reincarnation or annihilation. Either you will come back as something else or you will just cease to be altogether. These two things dominate the natural man's mind. Christianity stands alone in its expectation of resurrection and life hereafter in an eternally blessed condition. This is the revealed truth of the living God. Interestingly, and by way of application here, it is this consideration of life after death that has brought many into the kingdom of Christ. This is a sobering contemplation. What happens when you die? Where will you go? Will there be punishment? Will there be happiness? And what we're going to see this morning is that as believers in Christ, we are not left in a subjective state. We're told very clearly, all throughout the Scriptures really, but specifically here in this 11th chapter of John and other verses that I'm going to bring out, what happens to a believer when he dies, when she dies? And what is the basis or the grounds for what will happen? I wonder where you stand in relation to this this morning. What are you hoping for? Who are you trusting? Because there is one thing certain. The Lord tarrying in His return, my eyes and yours will close in death. Then comes whatever happens next. As we read Scripture, we know that whatever happens next is clearly laid out. There's no doubt, there's no speculation. And I hope that we all leave this morning with that firmly reestablished in our minds. And I'll say this at the outset, Jesus alone gives certainty in the face of death. Jesus alone gives certainty in the face of death. All else is speculation, and I think we can go so far as to call it satanic speculation. And we rightly sing, it is on Christ the solid rock that we stand. All else is sinking sand. I'm going to change one word in that familiar refrain. On Christ the solid rock, I will die. All else is sinking sand. This is a truth that Paul did not want us as believers to be ignorant of. He told the Thessalonians in chapter 4, verse 13 of his first epistle, he said, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven 
with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Jesus says, John eleven twenty five. we're going to see it later. I am the resurrection and the life. Paul reiterate, reiterates that. The dead will rise first. Resurrection. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Life. Jesus is both the resurrection and the life. Paul ends that paragraph by saying, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so as we consider this doctrine of resurrection this morning, I want you to be reminded that this resurrection doctrine is our comfort in life and it is our comfort in death. The truth of there being resurrection unto eternal life sustains us and undergirds our faith when we stand beside the grave of a loved one who has fallen prey to its clutches. Death and the grave are mighty enemies in this life. Paul calls, Paul calls death the last enemy. But while they are mighty enemies, we rejoice in the fact that both have been soundly defeated by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there is scarcely a time at the cemetery when we are committing a body. There is scarcely a time that I don't remind myself and all of those present, if I have opportunity, that that place at that time is a place of great sadness and weeping. But in that day which is yet to come, that same place is transformed into a place of great rejoicing and triumph. Just imagine with a sanctified mind, if you can, what a cemetery will look like on that great day of the Lord. The dead in Christ rising first. And the rejoicing that will follow. Great triumph and great victory. So I want you to open your Bible to John 11 if you haven't already. And we're going to read several verses here in what is a tremendous chapter of this gospel. John 11 is unique in that it is the only place in the scripture that we find the account of Jesus Raising Lazarus from the dead. And I know this is vanity for me to say it, but I'll say it anyway, and perhaps you would join me in saying it. Of all the miracles that Jesus performed in the scripture, I would have most liked to have been present for this one. And I realize it's hard to pick one, but given the opportunity to be a first-hand eyewitness to a miracle of Christ, I would for sure be standing outside the tomb of Lazarus and hearing Jesus call him to life. I want to, we're going to quickly cover, stay with me when I tell you this, the first 40, I can't really see that, 43 verses, I think, 44. But we're going to center on the 25th verse where Jesus makes this statement. I am the resurrection and the life. But we need to work our way to that point. And in working our way to that point, there are several things that will benefit us this morning as we consider this doctrine of resurrection and life. The first verse of chapter 11 says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, 
He whom you love is sick. I'm going to stop there and give you the first point. And cover very briefly a biblical perspective concerning sickness and disease. Don't miss these words. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. You can't read the 11th chapter of John's gospel without realizing that Jesus had great affection for Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. The scriptures say very plainly that he loved them. And it's unique in the 35th verse that Jesus, upon seeing the grief of Martha and Mary and his love for Lazarus, that he stands outside the tomb and he weeps. Jesus wept. We know that verse. It's distinguished as being the shortest verse in the Bible, two words. But it's full of meaning that Jesus, the God-man, in his humanity, had such great love for Lazarus and watching his grieving friends would join in their sorrow speaks volumes to us. And so contrary to much popular thinking, sickness and disease comes to those whom the Lord loves. Sickness is not a sign of God's displeasure. Sickness is not always a sign of God's judgment. Can be, but not always. I want to say this as clearly as I think the scriptures declare it in this 11th chapter. Sickness and its ensuing death can sometimes be a great mercy of God. And I know that doesn't ring in our ears as lining up with much of the way the world around us thinks. But if we take at face value what the scripture says, Lord, he whom you love is sick. And then what Jesus says in the fourth verse, giving commentary on this, he says, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. I think on that for a moment. That is something that stands unique in Christianity, sickness unto the glory of God. Some of the things that God has used outside of his word in my own life to strengthen my faith is to watch a believer die well. Given opportunity of the Lord, I realize some believers die quickly. But those who are given to weeks, months, and perhaps even years of suffering to watch them die well is a tremendous way the Lord strengthens our own faith. You can read and go back and chronicle the life of a pastor in Missouri named Bob Jennings who died from pancreatic cancer, had years of suffering. Though I didn't know him well, many of my pastor friends did, and they pointed me to a journal that he kept during those years and to read through those journals and the things that he would say. He understood, and he had a biblical perspective concerning sickness and disease. Very often, it is to reveal the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So as we continue the story here in the fifth verse, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And now in this story, there is a little bit of an interjection. There is something here that we're told about the place where this miracle would be performed. We know it's in Bethany. This 18th verse tells us that it was two miles away from Jerusalem, situated there on the side of the mountain with the Kidron Valley in the, below Jerusalem on the other side. You could see Jerusalem and Bethany. But notice what is said here in the 8th verse. The disciples tell Jesus something. 
And they tell him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? Skip down to the 18th verse. Or excuse me, the the 16th verse, where Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. In their minds, they equated Jesus returning to Bethany would surely result in his death. The Jews there were very hostile against him. But I want you to notice how Jesus responds. This is the second point. The first being a biblical perspective concerning sickness and disease. The second is notice Jesus' resolve in the face of very real danger. How does he respond in the face of this real? This is not supposed. This is not hypothetical. The disciples realize it for what it is and basically say to Jesus, you will endanger yourself if you go. But what's there? Friends that he loves. One of them has died. Nothing could stop him from going. But notice how he answers, and this is the most perplexing verse of the entire chapter. In verse 9, Jesus answers by saying, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What does Jesus mean? Well, J.C. Ryle helps us in understanding this verse. He gives a paraphrase of what he thinks it means, and I think he's right. It makes a lot of sense, and I'm going to read it to you verbatim. J.C. Ryle says, think of Jesus as saying it this way. This is his interpretation. He says, during my 12 hours of ministry, my day of work, my day of work is not yet over. There is no fear of my life being cut short before the time. I shall not be slain until my work is finished. Till my hour is come, I am safe, and not a hair of my head can be touched. I am like one walking in the full light of the sun. I cannot fall. The night will soon be here when I shall walk on the earth no longer. But the night has not yet come. There are 12 hours in my day of earthly ministry, and the 12th with me has not yet arrived. End quote. How does Jesus respond? He responds out of a perspective that is firmly cemented in the sovereignty of God. Was there real danger to be found in Bethany? Were there those who hated him, wanted to kill him, have already tried to stone him so much that the disciple Thomas says, well, let's just go and die with him because if he goes, he's going to die. But Jesus understood that he was sent to this earth to accomplish a certain mission and it was not yet his time So he walked into the face of that very real danger, unflinching. We just sang a moment ago, what e'er my God ordains is right. And before we go on with this account of Lazarus being raised from the dead, I don't want us to miss this obscure verse 9 and the teaching that we can benefit from it. Because we are living in a very fearful time, aren't we? Fears are swirling around us. Fears that this chapter deals with. Fears of sickness and disease. I was reminded this past week as we all, some of us men and boys, went to Colorado. I was reminded this week of the right way to deal with fear. Even in this context, how do you deal with fear? 
You take that fear, whatever it is, and then you fear something greater, and it kills this smaller fear. And in this sense, verse 9 makes tremendous sense, and it is tremendously helpful. How did Jesus overcome the temptation to fear that the disciples had? Well, he feared God more. He understood that his time had not yet come. And brethren, that's the same way that we deal with lesser fears. We fear God more. We do what God has told us to do in the face of very real danger, trusting Him all the way. That whatever He allows into my life, it has passed through His hands and He has allowed it. And in that sense, there's nothing I can do to remove myself from it anyway. I might as well walk into it knowing that God is sovereign. Whatever He brings into my life, I can go to bed at night knowing that my good, gracious, compassionate, kind Father in heaven has allowed it to come. There is no sense or reason for us to live in crippling fear. How do you kill it? Fear God. Obey God. Carry out His commandments. Love one another. Do those things that are put very plainly in Scripture for us to do. And that fear of God will quench every other lesser fear. Fear God and keep His commandments. So in the face of very real danger, Jesus speaks a parable of sorts. And at the end of it, in verse 11, he says, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. His disciples misunderstood. This is an encouragement to me. How often do the disciples misunderstand something Jesus says? Very often. And yet, he is always, most often, gracious to explain further. The disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. They believe the same thing that we believe. If you're sick, you need to rest. You need to sleep. However, Jesus was speaking of his death. But they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Jesus knew what was about to happen. He says, nevertheless, let us go to him. And it's at that point that Thomas makes his declaration to the other disciples, let's go and die with him. So we're down in verse 17. And now we're just looking at the really, the real Not only the context, but the statement of this 11th chapter, the resurrection and the life. When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. And there may be something to to this. What was current among the unbelieving Jews in that day is that when a person died... In the immediate days following his death, there was some interaction between body and soul, body and spirit. Now, obviously, that's not a biblical thought, but there were some who thought that. And so by the Gospels and Jesus waiting until the fourth day, perhaps, can't be dogmatic here, but perhaps he was going to totally dismiss the idea that Lazarus was not really dead, or at least there was some interaction still between body and soul. Four days, there's no doubt. Why? Because the body stinks. That detail is also brought out in this account. Verse 18 tells us, Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, She went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, now notice, both of these sisters say the exact same 
thing to Jesus verbatim. It's a repetition. But they say these words, I think, with a measure of faith in Christ and what he could have done had he been present. Martha first says to him in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And you can hear the small element of faith in that statement, can't you? Lord, if you had been here, if you could have dealt with him, if you could have laid your hands on him, if you could have prayed for him, if you could have done anything for him while you were here, he would still be alive. And then she says in verse 22, still with a measure of faith, she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. I honestly don't know whether or not she expected Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. My assumption is that she did not because the thing that she says referred to resurrection in the last day. But that doesn't really matter. Verse 24, she says such, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And that's in response to Jesus clearly saying to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. One of the things that's been helpful and interesting to me as we've studied these I am statements is to see the immediate context in which Jesus said them. I realize sometimes the temptation is just to pull them out and let them stand alone. But don't miss the context here. Lazarus in the tomb, Martha with a measure of faith coming and saying, Lord, if you'd been here, Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know, but that's a long time away in the resurrection. And then Jesus says, verse 25, I am the resurrection in the life. Follows the same pattern that we've seen with the previous four. In the Greek, it's literally Jesus saying, I, even I, me, even me, the one you're looking at, I am the resurrection and the life. Notice that Jesus is taking ownership of resurrection and life. Jesus is saying that he personifies both. It is His power through which resurrection will take place. And it is through His power that we have life eternal. Go back to the 10th chapter, verse 17. Just flip back a page in your Bible. And there Jesus says, concerning His death and resurrection, He says, My Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of myself. Now notice his statement. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it again. This command I received from my father. Jesus has already said that he has power to take up his life again. He is reiterating that here in this verse. I am the resurrection. There is no resurrection without the power of Christ. There is no resurrection without Jesus once and for all defeating the power of death and the grave. There is no life unless Jesus gives it. There is no physical life unless God in his kindness and mercy brings it into being. There is no eternal life without the death and then resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we see how he says in truth concerning both, I am the resurrection and the life. And you can almost see Martha standing there as, as deer in the headlights, her, her eyes bugged out at this statement. This is more than she bargained for. This is more than she probably assumed she would receive from Jesus. But he makes this glaring, bold statement to her. I am the resurrection and the life. If your brother has any hope, it's bound up in me. And that carries out to all of us, doesn't it? 
if we have any hope at all, it's bound up in Jesus and in our faith in him. And then Jesus issues a little commentary on this statement. First, he says, He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. So let's apply this to whom it should apply. He who believes in me. Though he dies, he will live or he shall live. Jesus is here referring to exactly the condition that Lazarus finds himself in, lying in a tomb not too far away. He has died physically. We define physical death as the separation of soul and body. That's why it's very often such a grievous thing. It's the rending apart of soul and body. The result is a lifeless corpse. The spirit having gone on to be with the Lord. For a believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus says, he who believes in me, though he dies a physical death, he shall live. That's resurrection. I am the resurrection. That's Jesus' commentary on the first part of this statement. I am the resurrection. If you die believing in me, you'll live again. That's comforting for us, isn't it? As we apply it to ourselves and as we apply it to those loved ones of ours who have already passed through death. Isn't that a great prospect and isn't that a comfort in this life to know that those who have died in the Lord being believers ourselves, there will be a coming day when we are reunited with them. We'll see them again. We'll enjoy their fellowship, their company again, this time in a place where there is no sin, where there is no prospect of separation ever again. But the second part of this, Jesus also describes when he says, and whoever lives. This time he's speaking not of a physical life, but a spiritual life. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Eternal life cannot be killed by physical death. That's something we just take by faith. Eternal life which begins in this life. Eternal life cannot begin in the next because the scripture says it is appointed for man to die once and after that, the judgment. Far too many people console and comfort themselves with the thought that after they die and they've come into the full reality of things post this life, then they will come to faith or then they will come to Christ. That's an impossibility. The scripture declares it to be a total impossibility. This day in which you live is the day of salvation. There is no other day. And I can say that because yesterday obviously is gone. We can't go back there. But far too many of us bank on tomorrow. Tomorrow has not yet come. And it may never. Today is what we have. And so the truth that Jesus explains for us here, eternal life cannot be killed by physical death, is one that every believer in the room should just shout hallelujah. I realize we're Baptists, we're in a Baptist church, sometimes we're silent and cold, and, but that fact should bring some tremendous joy to your heart. That your spiritual life cannot be snuffed out by physical death. And in that sense, the biblical way to think about dying is it is a necessary passageway to go through to open up greater things. You may have heard it said like this, but to go through death, all that means is that you are more alive than you've ever been. You are more alive to the realities of who Jesus is. There is no more cloudy vision. There is no more seeing through a glass darkly or dimly. 
There is the full and bright revelation of who Jesus is. And Jesus says it very plainly. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now here's the important question. Here's the important question that I want every one of us in the room to hear. And I want you to answer it. Don't have to answer it out loud. But certainly it demands an answer in your heart. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life? That it is only through Him that these two hopes are to be found? Do you believe that when you die physically, that you will be raised again to eternal life? And do you believe that you, having believed, will never die? Do you believe it? Martha believed. She said, verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe. Now notice how specific. This is how specific we have to be. She does not leave this open-ended. She puts a fine point on it when she says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior, the Son of God, sinless, perfect, who has come into the world. How about you? Do you believe this? You must. If you have hope of eternal life and have that hope in truth, you must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who's come into the world to do what? To die? To suffer in the place of sinners? And to be raised from the dead? Jesus said, I am the resurrection. I am the life. So there we have seen the doctrine of resurrection and life. We've seen Jesus declare that he is these things. Now he is about to take the lid off of this and put it into practice. And we see the practice of it in verses 28 through 44. And we'll go through this quickly. And when she had said these things, reading in verse 28, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she rose quickly and came to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, notice the exact same words that Martha has already said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit, and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they replied, Lord, come and see. Gotten us all the way down to the 35th verse. Jesus wept. And the Jews responded by saying, see how he loved him. Tears are appropriate when someone you love dies. We learn that here. We also learn it in Acts chapter 8, verse 2, when it says, Devout men carried Stephen to his burial. And you know what it says next? And they made a great lamentation over him. Stephen was a good and godly man, and his departure brought sorrow to those who knew and loved him. 
it's appropriate to weep, to grieve, and to mourn at the passing of a loved one. But we have to balance it so that we're not grieving as those who have no hope. We grieve as those who have tremendous hope when a loved one who dies, dies in the Lord. Some of them question Jesus. They seem to hint here that they know of his power. When they say, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind, which is recorded back in chapter 9, could he not have also kept this man from dying? And for the second time, the scriptures tell us Jesus groaned within himself. This shows us how deeply and keenly the Lord felt the effect of sin. Lazarus is in the tomb because of the presence of sin in the world. I didn't say that Lazarus was in the tomb because of some sin he committed. What I did say is that Lazarus was in the tomb because of the presence of sin. Death is a reality because of the presence of sin. In the garden, before sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, death was unknown. One of the parts of the curse brought on by sin is the reality of physical death, bodily death. Jesus feels and senses this keenly. Remember, He loved this man. And I think perhaps there's a hint here also of the groaning and the sweating great drops of blood that will happen just hours later. When Jesus is preparing Himself to remedy the effects of sin in the world once for all. And one glorious day we will all be partakers and the beneficiaries of that work. Jesus groaning within himself, he came to the tomb. It was a cave, a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus replied, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Aren't you thankful that God in his wisdom saw fit to record these words using John so that we, so far removed from this event, can read what Jesus said while standing outside of the tomb of someone he loved. He prays, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice. I want to stop short for just a minute. And I want to talk about this word loud. In the Greek it's the word megas. Think megaphone. Other translations say he cried out with a great voice. Now... Obviously, we believe that even before Jesus came to Bethany, where he was, he could have silently called Lazarus out of the tomb. He had done that already in one occasion. He had restored life while he was not present. So why did he do it this way? Why did he raise his voice? Why did Jesus yell at the tomb of Lazarus? 
he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And can you imagine what happened in the tomb? Lazarus, dead ears heard. Dead eyes opened. A heart that hadn't beat in four days began to beat. Blood that hadn't coursed through his veins in four days began to. Air filled his lungs that were already had begun the process of decay. And all at the word of Jesus. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said, loose him and let him go. Wouldn't you have liked to have been there? Well, in a sense, we were just now as we read it. It's no coincidence that John 11 chronologically follows John 10. When we were told there that Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep hear his voice. Lazarus was one of Jesus' sheep. Yes, he died believing. But when Christ spoke to him, knowing him by name, what did he do? He responded immediately. Lazarus could not have chosen to stay dead if he had wanted to. Why he would have wanted to, I have no idea. But when he heard the voice of his shepherd call his name, he woke up. And I think this prefigures two things. It prefigures what we read earlier from 1 Thessalonians. The dead in Christ shall rise first. With the trumpet of God, Christ will return. And guess what? Those ears that haven't heard in the case of some people for thousands of years that have already gone through the process of total decay, returning to dust, they'll hear. And they'll come out of the tomb. Just like Lazarus. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. You want proof? Let me show you. Here's a dead man. Let me put this doctrine into practice for you. Lazarus, Wake up. And he did. I think it also is a symbol, a picture, not just of a physical resurrection, but also of the new birth. Jesus calling his sheep out by name and having no spiritual life they hear him and come out of the tomb. Physically, Lazarus came out with grave clothes around his face, just like he had been laid down in the tomb. That's the way he came out. So much so that Jesus had to give the command, loose him and let him go. When the Lord saves us, very often we are wearing those same grave clothes, aren't we? The process of sanctification looses them, removes them. And we're let go, we're free. So we're given in these verses, John 11, and I encourage you, study this 11th chapter There is tremendous things that I haven't even brought up or mentioned. Study this 11th chapter. Glory in it. Jesus says plainly, I am the resurrection. That's the basis for our hope. And he says plainly, I am the life. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this account of Christ beside the tomb. Lord, we thank you that so soon after you made this declaration, you put it into practice. 
Lord, we know your timing is always right and perfect. Lord, we have a great expectation. All believers in this room have the expectation of being raised unto eternal life. If you tarry in your return and our bodies are committed to the the earth, to the grave, then we know that we are only bound and held there for a short while until your Son and our Savior returns with the shout of an archangel and the trumpet of God. Then in great hope, those who have died in faith in Christ will rise because Jesus is the resurrection. And we will therefore be ushered into life eternal because Jesus is the life. Father, I pray that we would be comforted by these words, that we would be encouraged and edified by them, And Lord, I pray the spiritual application of them would not be lost to us. That you would call even more out to faith. Lord, help those who are wavering in unbelief. Help those who are even now of two minds. Lord, may they hear your voice just as clearly and distinctly and loudly as the dead Lazarus in the tomb. Call them even this day, this hour to come forth and help them to follow you with joy. Lord, we're thankful for the great hope that this chapter instills in us. We look forward to that coming day. Even as we sang earlier, O Lord, haste the day when the faith shall become sight. We know that if we have put our faith and trust in Christ, come what may, life or death, that it will be well with our soul.